And then I got a message from the um, Russian FSB, what used to be called the KGB, which is something like, um, we won't, we can't give you permission, but we won't stop you. Hi, and welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with me, Clover Hogan. Today's episode is with fellow Aussie Sasha Dench, an award-winning conservationist, adventurer, and UN ambassador. Sasha has been called the human swan since she took to the skies in 2016. Equipped with just a propeller on her back and a piece of fabric to keep her airborne, Sasha migrated with the swans from Arctic Russia to the UK, crossing 11 countries to find out why the bird population was plummeting. Along the way, she launched an awareness campaign and triggered a wave of support to rescue the birds from their plight. In this episode, we chat overcoming fear, finding a mandate bigger than yourself, and reconciling loss in a changing world. We continue to perpetuate a mode of activism and responsibility that is broken and that does not work. The society that's being created is one that doesn't value everybody, doesn't value you if you're different. The status quo isn't values-led and, and so let's bring on that challenge. I have a whole new understanding of strength of human. I want to be able to look back at my life and think, I did something which actually changed the world and made a difference. Welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with your host, Clover Hogan. Sasha, why have you become known as the human swan? Um, a title which I resisted for some time um, because basically my my model for figuring out and getting lots of other people to help conservationists figure out what is going wrong for a Buick Swan. I came up with this mad idea of flying with them on their migration, so from the Arctic Russia to the UK. And it had to be done in order for me to be able to tell the story of the birds to people and get them excited enough about the birds um, to offer us kind of ideas and suggestions of, of what to do. I had to be able to tell the story kind of for them um, and... To do that, I needed to fly in an aircraft that was like the birds, exposed to the weather. I could take off and land pretty much anywhere without the need for, for runways and roads because they're migrating across some of the wildest parts of the world. So, yeah, I had to do it in this little paramotor. And for that, I became the human swan. What was the catalyst? So my expertise is in communicating conservation, and I often take a slightly alternative route. And I also try and apply the same sort of empathy that um, often conservationists have for the animals and try and apply it also to the people. We often really miss that bit of like most people actually aren't bad. So anyway, I, I was in this room with lots of scientists from different countries who are all wanting to figure out, well, well also figure out and solve this bird from going extinct. Um, and I just saw brilliant people, lots of brilliant, uh, lots of brilliant data. And they were asking me to like, how can we get the power companies and the hunters and other people that we've been trying to talk to for 30 years. How do we get them to a table? Can you help us write letters to meetings? And I just looked at it all and saying, like, all the people that you're talking to, they're just, the idea of, like, inviting people to meetings is, A, not exciting. The story you're trying to tell them is a really miserable one. It's like, you know, you're part of the problem and killing lots of birds, whether you mean to or not. It's not a story anyone really wants to hear. Um, but there is a story there that I think everyone will want to hear. And I grew up in a hunting community. And so specifically thinking about them, I was like, they, they might not want to come to a meeting to be told they're bad, but they might want to hear about this incredible journey of these migrating birds. Most people don't imagine swans traveling from the Russian Arctic to the UK. If we can bring that story to life, 
then um, I think that will do it. And I, the big challenge, I suppose, was figuring out how to do it. And I thought of putting little cameras on birds and um, that was never going to get approval of a, certainly of a species that was in rapid decline. Um, and um, eventually I just thought, you know, flying in my paramotor, I fly at about the same speed and altitude as um, as the as the swans. I've got suffer many of the same challenges as them. Um, but it just looked ridiculous. A paramotor <laughs> is not designed for flying. Can you describe what a paramotor is, looks like? So it is basically a big paraglider wing, um, lots of that you're kind of attached yourself to. So you're hanging underneath that and you have a propeller on your back and you're hanging in a, a kind of a chair. So it's sort of soft fabric. So when you're on the ground, it's kind of tucked up behind you. But as soon as you run along and the wing is above your head and it starts to lift you, it kind of scoops the seat piece from the back underneath your bum. So you kind of get lifted off the ground once you've got, um, uh, yeah, to take you, make you airborne. Imagine swinging on a swing, but you're, you know, a few hundred feet up and you basically <laughs> look, look down at your kind of feet dangling and there's the world below you. So you can feel very, very fragile um, and exposed to the elements. Um, and, you know, the higher you get, it's actually the, the higher you are, the safer you are. Whatever goes wrong for the wing, you obviously when you're falling, you've got a lot of time to try and figure it out. But you can quite easily feel very disconnected. And the higher up you go, the less you can notice movement on the ground. So you can also wonder whether you're actually <laughs> whether you're actually making any progress. But it is a fantastic feeling. And I don't know why everyone doesn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, you're both... Uh courageous and also a little bit bonkers because I think very few of us would have the uh, bravery to strap one of these things to our backs and put our lives on the line to bring awareness to this critical story as you said at any point did you think this is absolutely crazy and how did you navigate that as those thoughts Mm. perhaps bubbled into your mind Right. So at the beginning, I did. Yes. So once I first had the idea of flying with them, I didn't tell anybody. In fact, I told a couple of people who I respected in the flying paramotor world. And one of them, before he knew what the idea was, had said, yeah, yeah, I want to come meet you. I'm really expert in logistics. He works in the RAF. Then he sat down and he actually, when I told him what it was, he was like, I had to kind of deal in stuff that's possible. I found this thought who is like if there's anyone out there who'd really think this was possible who would it be and um, it was um, there was a guy called Richard Meredith Hardy who was the first man to fly a paramotor across the English Channel mm. he'd also the first to put get in a micro light and fly to South Africa and I just thought he's kind of m- quite mad been in the expedition world a long time does lots of ballooning he's kind of on the edge of flying and exploration but he knows everything and he's definitely definitely bonkers um and so i sent him an email which was i've had this idea everybody's telling me it's not possible but if you break it down into lots of small chunks which i've done i can't see why any of them are are impossible it's difficult to get fuel in remote places for example but i can't see why it's impossible despite everybody kind of dismissing it and i got a message back from him which just was call me and I was terrified. I thought, oh, he's either going to like just tell me off for being, a, you know, daft. I'd only been flying paramotors maybe for two years at that time. And I'd not done any long journeys mm. at all. But I had, you know, it was two years of developing my skills slowly. So I did call him and we basically, basically just quizzed me for a half an hour. How would you do this? How would you do this? Uh, what's this like? What would you do here? Uh, lots and lots of questions and he laughed a lot which definitely helped and at the end he said I think if anyone's going to do this you are Um, and 
it, you're right, it's not impossible. It's not easy, but it's not impossible. And next thing you know, so people like him are brilliant. He basically emailed me back with a list of useful contacts in every country, things that maybe I should think of, but almost worse than that is he'd copied all those people in. So by this time, <laughs> there was my original email at the bottom, which had the plan of exactly what I was going to do. So by this time, the cat was out of the bag, kind of waited then for other people in the flying world, who's, which is who he'd um, included. And there were people from the flying world in all the different countries. Once they started to respond with, yes, I'll help, or mm, this would be a bit challenging to do this bit, but I had other people going, this is not such a dumb idea and what an amazing cause. That was when you kind of like this confidence started to grow a bit. And then mm. I realized actually none of the conservationists have heard of this idea yet. So I'd better, um, I'd better go and, uh, I'd better go and email them. And then I just wrote up a page in the middle of the night, sent it off to, um, the head swan researcher and just thought, you know, this is going to kill it in the water. They're going to say no. Um, and they didn't. The response I got back was, this is totally bonkers, but we're so desperate and this might just work. Um, can we have coffee? And so I had coffee over 15 minutes and they obviously didn't really know what paramotoring was. And I think I kind of helped. I could show them <laughs> what it was. That I was using it to fly, do some aerial photography for work at the time. Um, but yeah, in the course of the meeting, they were like, well, you know, even if I think the, the perhaps one of the real things that I could say was, yeah, it's definitely it's difficult and I don't know if it'll work, but I'm pretty sure just the idea of trying is kind of interesting enough. And we've already got people in the flying world offering to help. If this also works with other people along the flyway that they're interested in getting involved and helping, then even if I don't manage to fly the whole route, it's already got people thinking about the migration of the birds mm. and how can we how can we contribute. Um, so you were less attached to that kind of end outcome than just the act of actually trying. And at what point uh, did it? The end outcome was a goal, not Sasha Dent flying mm. the migration route. So I wasn't attached right my ego wasn't tied in necessarily to the achieving it or not it didn't really matter if Sasha Dench flying this route was a failure mm. as long as we had made progress towards getting all those audiences yeah. interested I was then given a three thousand pounds I think to go up to Russia and figure out the bit that I thought was going to be the most challenging this really wasn't in the end but um <laughs> which was finding fuel drops up in the north where there's a thousand kilometers of no roads and no runways um and that was where the idea was to start engaging with people in the hunting community because they're the ones who are out using those regions when there are birds there. Um, and so that was the start of it. And when I had a room full of men like laughing at me at first, they were all kind of like asking, but actually, who's the actual pilot? And I was saying, it's me. It's, <laughs> it's definitely me. There's no misinterpretation in the translation. It's definitely me. Um, and then I'd made, I kind of ridiculed, made a bit of an idiot of myself by um, showing them a map and I was pointing to these towns and they were all written in Russian. And I said, you know, can I get fuel drops at these? Will I get fuel in these towns? And they were about 120 kilometers apart. And um, one of the men kind of put his hand up and he said, do you know what the word means in brackets at the end of the name of the town? And I said, no. <laughs> he said, that means abandoned. Um, so uh, you'd be lucky if there's much in the way of wood left, um, let alone a petrol station. But then there was just one man. He got up and he started making little marks on a map and um and he was basically saying that he would he could leave fuel there. Um, he does take hunting tourists out to those huts. He he was basically the first one to stand up and say, 
I think I'm happy to help you. And once one person had changed their mind, all the others were starting to go, oh, well, maybe I can do this as well. And then I was like, right, okay, so a key part is not only to figure out what stories are interesting, but who are the people who are the potential influencer in their community in general. Um, And that kind of works everywhere. And all it takes is that person to then start um, getting lots of other people to go, oh, maybe this mad woman like is worth supporting. Very powerful, very, very powerful. That message exactly is identifying who those key kind of influencers are. But throughout this process, I think there is a lot of trust involved in your part as well, because you're saying, you know, I'm going to have to fly 120 kilometers. I'm completely dependent on this one individual showing up and doing what they say they're going to. Um, how is that for you? I never questioned whether or not he would he would <laughs> he would do it. To be honest, mm. did you go to that kind of worst case scenario in your mind at any point? Yeah, um, that is one nice thing about combining adventure with conservation. So I'm really comfortable with stuff going wrong because a is what happens on an adventure. Like the idea is that nothing is completely planned beforehand. So yeah, there were lots and lots of of backups. So for example, when there was another pilot flying with me, we both had to have exactly the same um well enough kit on us that if anything went wrong with your motor and you ended up somewhere remote you could look after yourself for at least three or four days until we could definitely get some help out um but the idea was that if one person landed there would be no expectation for the other person to also land because it might be in a really unsafe place it Mm. might have been a tiny bit of dry land in the middle of you know a really huge bog in which case there's no point putting two people at risk because you can't really help each other that much so there was lots of um lots of backup thinking when was the greatest moment of doubt for you the greatest moment of doubt was having this mad idea in my head before starting and realizing and thinking just like you can't even like express this idea to people and then having the first couple of paramotors say it's not possible um and then but not being able to let it go myself i was like but i I just really think it is and then i was like either am i completely bonkers (laughs) Because it seems it's it's out there, but I really, really think it could work. So there was definitely moments of part doubt, but this burning feeling that I just have to tell somebody. To the point where it was keeping you up at night, I remember yes. you saying. I was just thinking, I, um, I'm just going to make an idiot of myself, but I had to do it. So anyway, <laughs> there it was. And it became what it did. Um, there were huge doubts around getting permissions to fly across the north of Russia. So uh, I was basically asking to fly across five of their heavily guarded border regions in a small aircraft that doesn't show up on radar. Um, I wasn't able to tell them exactly when I would take off and land because in the paraglider, you are beholden to the weather. Like anything more than 12 mile an hour wind, and it's very hard to take off and 100% be sure of not being dragged. Um, And uh, I was going to do it with cameras and on me and filming and potentially the kit to live broadcast. And I was going to stop in and talk to anybody that I felt like along the way. Nobody had flown apart from just around a local city. No one had flown paramotors in these places. So yeah, they had plenty of really good reasons to say no. And for months, I wasn't getting any response from my applications for flying permissions. In the like two months, three, two or three months beforehand, when um, we were sitting with my fixer on the end of the Skype call and um, thinking, God, I've done everything I can. I've gone for like influential people. We've got David Attenborough, we've got Ranul Fiennes on the team. Like, what else can we do? And my fixer said, he was great. He um, he just said, you know, Sasha, they're great people, but the Russians don't really know who they are. They really love James Bond. 
And I noticed that your last name is Dench. Yeah, we have always wondered whether Judy Dench was uh, in the family. And then found a Canadian relative, did a bit of searching and found that it's tenuous. But my <laughs> great, great grandfather is her great grandfather. Wow. Um, who was a customs officer from Weymouth. The unfortunate thing is that he was also a bigamist. So uh-huh. um, Judy Dench <laughs> is from his first uh, wife and I'm from the second. Done. Um, <laughs> the second <laughs> who he married as well, uh, whose name was Bessie from, from, um, from Battersea. And... Um, but I found myself writing this up in a in a letter and sending it to every address I could find online for Judy Dench and Judy Dench's contacts and Judy Dench's um, partner. And uh, yeah, I got a response back that was that's kind of totally mad story. But I love the mission. How can I how can I possibly not be a patron? Wow. And uh, with that, we did start getting a response. So it was still a month beforehand. I went before I was supposed to actually be flying. I went up to the, I went to Moscow, did as many meetings I could. So I got, went to departments and found the people who could write me a letter that would say, you know, we support this mission. So it was the Minister for the Environment equivalent and it was for natural resources. And so I had lots of letters, but still nothing from the aviation. So it was just a few weeks before I was supposed to set off when um, the governor for the region came down um to a kind of a, a sort of launch party and i was just thinking i really did not have permissions to fly like what the hell happens in russia if you just set off flying through the middle of nowhere with no permissions um and you can be detained for a month or two months without any um without any kind of justification and so lots of people were telling me what, what you're what you're thinking of doing is ridiculous and i was like it's i really don't think they are they are still ordinary people and they're going to be sold still on the mission there is something much more powerful mm. um about the, the mission if you can express that well enough and yeah found anyway the governor came down and shook my hand and at that point and wished me luck and I, at that point i knew that this was going to be okay because he is directly appointed by Putin and there's no chance in the world he would come down and shake my hand and on camera if um, it wasn't known about. So at that point, I knew we could go for it. And then I got a message from the um, Russian FSB, what used to be called the KGB, which is something like, um, we won't, we can't give you permission, but we won't stop you. Um, (laughs) As long as you, I did have to send a text message before I flew and wait for a response. This was via sat phone. Um, And there was one area where I had to fly below 300 feet, which was not what you would normally safely do over a forest. Um, But that was the only way we could get around it. And I now know that that was all they were trying to do was make sure that there was no chance I would collide with unmanned aircraft Mm. because anyone flying an ordinary aircraft would see me, but they're unmanned aircraft Right. Um, wouldn't. So they were just making sure that was never going to be a problem. They were looking out for you. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you could hear it in the voices of air traffic control. There, there was like a bit of a smile behind the voice. People going, <laughs> I can't believe she's doing this, but <laughs> but go you. And there was definitely a lot of kind of as a Russian-British um, shared thing of um, or love, I suppose, of people with mad missions and adventurers. They've got long histories, both of them. How long were you on this journey for and how did people on the ground receive you when you landed in their villages and towns? Well, there's a tiny bit of fear, but as soon as my helmet comes off and people can see that I'm female, um, that kind of goes and, yeah, the, the instant reaction is who are you but where have you come from and do you need help a lot of people assume if you've got a paraglider that you're actually a parachute Mm. and you've just fallen from an aircraft somewhere wow um but the reactions are fairly varied there was one school in rochester and kent in the uk where the reception was 
the only place in the UK in the UK it was really <laughs> funny I landed we were basically this, we were trying to fly kind of around along the Thames and there was um, a massive um, storm was suddenly brewing and actually we're trying to find a place to land was a bit difficult there was a cleared area um, which was an old field which had clearly been used as a sports ground at some time but as you went down it had all sorts of junk in it so people had burnt things and broken things and I thought actually like metal bars and things sticking up from the ground things had been buried so it was mm. too dangerous so the next nearest thing was a school um, and the school grounds were beautiful, like very well cared for, huge flat ground. Um, and I don't so like, like you walking on the grass here, no. though. <laughs> it's a sports ground and there were no children anywhere to be seen. So I was like, that's it. And I, I was on wheels at that point because I damaged my knee. So it was like easy, right? So I came in and landed there and, um, you know, man came out to me as quite often and he was like, get off, get off. And I took my helmet off and they didn't subside. But the funny thing is that at the same time we had been on London television the night beforehand had lots of coverage for just having crossed the English yeah. Channel in the Paramote. It was a, you know, it was a first. Um, and so, and because I'd been circling a bit in the area trying to find a place to land, um, there were people like crawling, scrabbling through the hedges of their place <laughs> to try and get autographs. <laughs> And even the ladies who'd been working with him, who were volunteering with him to help kind of maintain the grounds, they'd been there and they went up and they were like, oh, no, 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 we saw this on television, it's legitimate. But there was no stopping. It was like, nope, get off, get off. That's the only person in the whole of the journey of course it was who was Britain. like, get off, who are you? <laughs> Worried about his very, very perfect grass. I mean, that was he did have very, very yes, beautiful Yes, priorities. Um, um, <laughs> but generally people were, um, were really really welcoming so I had basic Russian um, mm -hmm. but there might have been uh, somebody with me who could translate so they'd be totally fascinated by kind of who mm. and what and everything else um, and eventually they kind of get to asking something like so you really have come all the way here in that thing just to talk to us about swans and then once they realize that you're willing to put yourself through that for a cause they generally want to know like what can I do? Mm. Um, and so that was just the perfect start to lots of conversations with different groups of people along the flyway. Amazing. And how long were you up in the air for or traveling for? At any one time. I tried to not be in the air because it was cold. Um, so the, the autumn migration from the Arctic to the UK actually was coldest over Estonia. But I tried to not fly for more than two hours. So even with heated gloves and everything, um, you start to get as you get cold your brain starts to get a little bit slower so um and also from sort of sitting in a in a sim a, the same kind of position for a lot of the time sometimes the flying is very energetic if you're if it's turbulent air then you're moving your arms around a lot there was uh, an occasion where my my batteries became unplugged so the batteries that heat my gloves the um, just became unplugged and it was too difficult for me to mm. re-plug it in underneath all my, I was wearing maybe nine layers of clothing at that point. Mm. Um, and within minutes, my hands were so cold. I was like, I just have to land. So I landed in a field. And by that time, I realized that it's really some stuff that's normally very simple. You have to really think about quite hard. So looking at a windsock, for example, um, like a windsock will tell you what direction the wind is and you have to land into wind. Um, and so that you normally do automatically when mm. you're in a kind of good mental state. When you're really cold, that takes some effort. So yeah, all those things become much harder. And as soon as that becomes slightly hard, then I know that's that's when I've got to Time come to down up, and yeah. have a break. And what was it like seeing the world from that perspective, from the swan's perspective? 
I think it's really healthy for everybody to just step back. It's just like just like kind of looking at issues, stepping back from issues and thinking like, you know, is it is the importance kind of shouting about it here? Or when you step back from the issue, are the blockages just these maybe two individuals thing? It's very similar, I find, for conservation to be able to look at everything from above. Um, so it gave me good headspace to think about the world. It also makes it really clear. So from above, uh, people have thought, what can you really get? What information can you really get from following birds? Well, I know from the birds that have got satellite tags on them, we know which sites they're using. We also know exactly where they're using in a particular area. But if that's all you know from looking at the satellite tag, that's very different from actually being there and going, like, what is it about those particular sites that making they're going there? Are they going there because there's a threat in another part of the another part of the wetland, um, which is which is driving them there? Um, are they moving around because there's lots of disturbance? Is that because there's hunting, or is it just because, you know, for some other reason? Um, all of that thing, all of that sort of thing, you can see from above. You can also see if there's. Um, uh, sources of pollution mm. so after any kind of rain you can see that very clearly in the changing water colors so you get a lot of information from looking at the world from above and being there at the time is great to look at google earth and things but that's one snapshot in time and the other thing it makes the world feel quite small which is kind of scary but it also means the problems sort of feel quite manageable so when you've visited communities regularly like every every hour every couple of hours all the way it makes us all feel quite similar. Yeah, we feel much more connected with mm. um, with uh, lots of other people. And also, despite the language changes, seeing very similar level of human engagement and interest with a problem. If you can present it in the right way, people are people. Um, they have very different levels of resources. Like some of them are doing a lot with very, very little. But they people have still underlying a very, very similar desire to help. And if they see someone who's putting themselves out for a cause, it is a basic human um, uh, action, I think, if you can present it in the right way to kind of go, well, how can I help? I think so often the reason that we do shut down when it comes to challenges of environment, social justice, climate change, is just because they are so emotionally zapping and provocative and um, overwhelming. And that is also because we've told a very singular narrative about these problems. And you only have to go into Twitter for five minutes to be completely inundated with catastrophizing kind of news stories. Um, and so the fact that you're able to create an invitation for an, and an opportunity to people and then embody that invitation by literally putting your life on the line to follow these swan migrations, you can see why people would just be in absolute awe. And I think really interesting, you spoke about this combination of the grassroots kind of engagement and and how aware you were of just how similar we are and actually how little divides us. But then you also gained this really interesting kind of overview effect, which a number of astronauts have also uh, mm. articulated and expressed once they've gone, you know, up and from the moon actually looked back at the planet. And just this aha moment of, oh my gosh, we are all one species. Mm. This is our home. Mm. We have to mm. protect it at any yeah. cost. I mean, that is definitely, that's definitely one of the really powerful things and the reason that I kind of want to keep doing more flywares around the world because it's a, it is a, 
a powerful narrative and it's also inspiring for me like I've also been in a space early in my conservation career where I was, was a scientist but also trying to make change and I did it in a very very different way of just going if people could just see it then they would like want to fix it and I did it in quite a like quite a shouty fashion I'd say that and now I just I just am keen to to try a completely different um, approach to that. And so how were you received when you came back to the UK? I was so exhausted. <laughs> so, okay, so I did, um, crossing the English Channel was, um, it was a big deal for a lot of people and it was a big stretch of water. When you're crossing a large body of water, the, the difficult position is you've got just a two-stroke engine. If it fails, you are ending up in the water, whether you like it or not. Um, and the water conditions and how you're paramotor and the wing impact with the water lots of different things could go wrong you know if, if part of the frame sort of were to break if it was hard if you get dragged by the wing there were so many variables and I thought god what is the one thing that you really need and I realized it's a bit of time so for example things, apart from those bits of metal breaking the paraglider if it lands on you the fabric kind of sticks to the water then the lines can be tangled around you there's so many variables also if the human if your body impacts the water you can be winded so even mm. if you've got you might take a breath and I ha once broke a record in training for breath holding so I knew that you know I was really good for breath holding but on impact if you are winded then you've got no air in your lungs so then I realized yeah the key thing for me was flying with a with a spare air so I just thought what you really need if on impact with water whatever kind of shock you just need to have a couple of minutes to think about it so knife a spare air and I think I was I was pretty good to go. So there was there was a little bit of concern from lots of people that this could be like the grand awful finale if your motor fails, and that was I was going to have to fly higher than ever before, mm. um, because if you do get a motor failure, you need plenty of time to think about, prepare, get yourself untangled from everything. So I was at three and a half thousand feet, and it was pretty freezing up there as well. So some kit doesn't like being in the cold, so you can get kit failures. Lots of things are potentially challenging. Anyway. Once I had that sorted, went up to three and a half thousand feet, had a beautiful flight across the English Channel. Um, and I landed and um, to the kind of media asking, how does it feel to be the first woman to cross the English Channel in a paramotor? And my gut reaction was, I have just flown six and a half thousand kilometers from Arctic Russia. Aren't you more interested in that? <laughs> um, and uh, but I think I'd managed to say something a bit more inspiring because it was, you know, it was a big deal. It was a first. And for the main reason that the media had been so amazing to us from the whole journey, there's often a sort of narrative about, you know, distrust of media, which is so, so rampant. Mm. I One of the approaches I'd taken right at the beginning was to really sit down and explain to anyone, any journalist that looked like they were likely to be on on board, like interested for more than just one piece. I'd bothered to talk to them about the expedition, mm. but not only the expedition and how it would work, but also how we're hoping that the media coverage will actually directly help the conservation of swans. And I'm, I've worked with the media for a long time. And so I kind of know how to press like the simple buttons. How do you get headlines and things? But it's a bit of a different thing when you can say to people, actually, you know, it's great to have this coverage, but I'm not that interested in like coverage of Sasha Dench. But if you can get coverage of this or actually make sure you say where our camp is, then people will come down and we want local people to come down and find us and tell a story. That was such a powerful tool to have local people hear about in the news and come down and say, well, I've heard this is happening. And how about this? And this power line here, some people bought footage of, 
birds that colliding with power lines because they were like, well, I heard about it and this happens every day near us. So um, the media had been incredibly helpful. Um, I think we'd had 1,800 pieces of coverage by that time in all wow. the different countries, 84 in Russia where people said the Russians will never cover conservation. It was just... Yeah, so um, yeah, at that point, I suppose it was it was a fantastic um, finale in a lot of ways. Amazing. And how has it affected swan conservation since? So one of the target areas was um, the the shooting of of swans um, up in the Arctic and trying to figure out um, where it's happening, what are the reasons, how can we stop it. We just didn't have the engagement with hunters. So we now have a group of 20 who are called the Swan Champion Network, includes all the Russian tourism operators up in the town of Nariamar where I came from. Um, It includes some people from Arkhangelsk as well, which is another major city where largely the foreign tourist hunters are coming from. And we had plenty of conversations with people going, we just didn't know. Like, you know, lots of Westerners hate the idea of hunting anyway. So it was hard to figure out whether when you first mentioned swans, was this just because swans are in fairy tales? Is it because they're really declining? Um, but we we really just didn't know. And when you think about it, they're from a part of the world where there is no agriculture that's permafrost. So they rely on, in the past anyway, people, the local nomads have relied on hunting and berries and and mushrooms and things for for food Mm. so they have a very different interaction with um, animals which is part of their culture they're happy to eat reindeer follow them have them as pets revere them like reindeer are everything in their world but they don't have a problem with also eating them and so i've been invited up um, once or twice a year in the last couple of years to go and help add show the film we've got a film showing going up um traveling all around different communities the last census of swans um is showing the swan population not only leveling off but starting to increase again the real test will be on illegal shooting is when we next do scanning catching birds and scanning them will uh, the young birds have the same rate of um lead pellets um, in their bodies Um, but it's not just Russia one of the nice things about the expedition that we found in in lots of other places there are issues of um, illegal shooting of um, Buick swans there were two shot in Belgium week before last but the inspiring thing about that is that three separate people got in touch on Facebook and said this is an issue here are the pictures these are people that you could speak to there are other people out there who are interested and who will want to know this so that's fantastic the, um, the, an app has been created so that any member of the public can um, if they are seeing birds hitting power lines regularly um, can notify can basically Mark it through the app. You don't have to have a picture of the dead bird. Um, and that will all be taken into by the IUCN. So the next stage f- um, for me is to promote that as widely as possible, particularly on main areas of the flyway. So we've done a really good job towards tackling the illegal shooting, the um, power line collisions, and yeah, plenty of other stuff um, in different parts of the world. In areas where the wetlands have been turned into fish farms, it seems it's a reasonably common thing. Uh, going through those areas and realizing that actually this, these sites are quite important. They might not be the areas where they winter or where they breed, but this is the last place they can stop and feed before they do the few thousand kilometers all the way back to where they where they have to breed. And the condition that they land there will determine whether or not they've got enough energy to actually breed. There is farmland they can feed on, but there isn't their roosting sites anymore because this is now a fish farm. And so we had fish farm owners saying, well, we don't have to drain 
the ponds at this time of year for those times they're migration we can keep the water levels higher and drain them three weeks later that's not a problem Hmm. um and so we've now got areas where there are roosting sites available for migrating birds and it's not just the burek swan it shares the migration route with lots of other birds migrating between um, western europe and russia so lots by putting out an incredible story and an open call for people to be a part of it, giving them an opportunity to be one of the good guys, not the bad guy, mm. which is what we tried to do the whole way. Absolutely. As we stand looking in the face of the sixth mass extinction and the decline of species in every corner of the world, why do you feel like we've become largely complacent as a society with the demise of other species on this planet and what do you think is keeping more people from stepping up with the kind of courage and tenacity and uncompromising resolve that you held to be able to pursue this really ballsy flight and journey we are generally less less connected with stuff that is going on around us with the natural world living largely in cities there's also i think a feeling just of general overwhelm the world just feels so big and most people don't feel like anything that they could actually do i mean people are comfortable with like quick stuff on social media or sharing something a like on something because that's kind of an easy easy quick thing to get over the 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 whatever um issue you're kind of upset about at the time but just having no idea what they can do and how on earth their tiny thing could help and this belief that it's you know the government or somebody else can is actually the one who needs to fix it. and they're definitely things that they can all do but the thing that really made people go well i can do something was hearing stories of other people along the flyway who've also not got very much you've also got like zero power saying well i could do that bit mm. and so being able to think oh well if i do this bit here then and somebody else does that bit then overall i can see that might add up to something bigger but it kind of needed us to come along and say here's this issue like let's focus on this one for a time if you help this other things will also benefit um but it's not you on your own. It's you and that person and that person. It's the NetNets community making sure that none of the kids who start shooting for their families at nine years old make sure that they know that the Buick Swan is in decline and at least until the populations are back at high levels, let's just give them a break. Um, if people are doing a small thing up in a place like Russia, then someone in Devon has said to me well if you know if if they can do that bit then I can leave my whatever hedges longer I can do this stuff um so the the connection between um different yeah people seeing that other people will also help Mm. and this can add up to something really significant and maybe it helps also that we are we are going to measure it so we will be looking at we will be catching birds we will be scanning it it's the bravery of a, of a single individual stepping up. And then it is that sense of the collective, isn't it? Because I think yeah. often when we're looking in the face of a messy problem, as you said, we try to spread ourselves thin by lots of kind of micro actions, you know, and it is retweeting, it is sharing mm. the petition and whatnot. And, and that kind of sways us in the sweet assurance that we've done our bit for a time. And yet mm. the problem continues to mount and the guilt continues to mount yeah. in the face of it. I basically got to the point when I was sitting on my idea, I just saw something I thought, I really, really think this will work. I did sit on it for a long time and it's possible that I could have just sat on it if I hadn't found, say, Richard Meredith Hardy. <laughs> (laughs) just said actually hearing you I think you really can do it so he was the first person that really like 
backed me up when he didn't have to because I, I had an idea and I actually just threw it out there. I, I suffered people going, oh, this is ridiculous and realized even if they say it's ridiculous, we might end up coming up with a better idea. So just try and get over that first hurdle of having an idea and throw it out there, see whether, um, what sort of feedback you get. And even the really negative stuff, it's a good, they're good devil's advocates, those mm. kind of negative comments. And you can they flag things perhaps before you flag, are able to see flag them. things and yeah. help you test your resolve as well. So yeah. if you go, I just, you don't know what you're talking about. Then if you're dead certain of that, then that's a good thing. So that will help <laughs> build the confidence. But those people are made by the small group of people that in the early days say, We'll, we'll back you. And so being one of those people is also like really, really important. You need more mm. of those than you need the kind of the, the hero figure potentially. Um, but if the, you know, if there's somebody there who's, who's got an idea, like please be the person that you, that you think is good, please be the person that steps up and, and, uh, and backs them because that is, um, that really makes a massive difference. And, um, so we got to the point right before, leaving on the expedition i just thought what if i just what if this just does not work what if there's a reason why nobody has ever flown and i, I managed to like get in the air and i just i just can't do it if the air really is too wet i was at that point then where there were so many people who'd stepped up to help that i felt like a stage diver like i was just going to launch and pretty much no matter what happened there would be somebody would step up and and fill the gap and help it to work and that I suppose I'm going to carry with me into future projects where there are big ideas and just sharing it with enough people who buy into it who then will step in and help. And exactly as you said, you realized from point blank that this wasn't the Sasha Dent show. It was about something so much bigger. And in fact, I think that is really the power of having that kind of mandate, that mission that isn't about you, because you're able to circumnavigate, you know, the armchair critics but also the internal demons that are telling you it's not possible it's too hard it's like well actually I don't have a choice in the matter yeah <laughs> I kind of have to do this no matter what <laughs> and where do you think at what point in your life do you feel that that kind of conviction was ignited at 11 I entered a public speaking competition in Australia um, which I was giving a talk about apartheid an anti-apartheid talk and I wasn't even in it didn't wasn't in South Africa but at 11 we did years have, old well. was it, at 11 years old yeah we did have issues in Australia and one of my best friends with Aboriginal and there were issues from both sides where it should be a bit difficult so I guess maybe it was triggered then um, and um, that was this public speaking competition there was me talking about apartheid as an 11 year old I have no idea anymore what I said or, or um, <coughs> why I was so sure that I was enough of an expert on the issue but I was speaking <laughs> against others who were talking about ghosts and tourism in my town and people tried to convince me that I should go for something that was more suitable for an 11 year old and I just was like no I, this is what I this is what I think is important to talk about so clearly that's been there from a young age why I am not sure. And where did it start being conservation? Well, I was grew up in the Australian bush and was just very interested in nature. I spent a lot of time kind of watching it. And um, it was just for me like this endless space of curiosity and wonder from like the big scale stuff to the tiny stuff. It just was fascinating to me, the natural world. Um, so it started off as being an intrigue rather than feeling like I needed to to save it specifically. Um, but the town I grew in was also in the middle of the sort of quite a few issues. Well, it was the 
in the capital of Wailing in Australia. So there was those issues um, that it had in its past. The fishing industry was busy going through quite rapid change. Obviously, fish docks were, were disappearing quite quickly, but it's also um, a center for logging. So most of the logging was run by a Japanese company, but most of the local people were employed and there were plenty of people also tying themselves to trees and trying to campaign against it. So it was in the middle of those kinds of complex issues with really good friends and good people on both sides and every front. So it kind of gave me an, a perspective on people and issues and conflict that uh, was, yeah, interesting enough that it's meant that now I can kind of use, draw on that experience mm. and apply it to to other issues. Birds specifically are not what I'm passionate about. Um, no particular um no particular species, I would say. I'm interested in kind of big picture solution uh, change, big picture change in people and finding things that I personally think that I can I can benefit. And if it's a species that will help lots of other species um, in doing so, then that's what I'll do. I see this pattern reflected in my own upbringing, growing up in the Australian bush and the deep appreciation for the natural world that that kindled in me especially because there were no boundaries nature was not an other in my context you know we lived in a living room with I think three walls which meant that you know there was a day when every under every pillow on the couch mom found a baby python curled up and sleeping peacefully and something I still do out of habit is check my boots before I put them on in case there's a green tree frog or a little spider hiding inside in wait for me and so I think that also created the fabric of my deep appreciation for the lived experience of so many species. Um, equally, the town I grew up in, in Queensland, our family was, you know, lobbying against the frackers who were trying to come in. And we were hearing the harrowing stories of the town next door where, you know, kids were waking up with asthma that they had never had before and nosebleeds as a direct consequence of this fracking and this mining. And, you know, seeing what was happening to the Great Barrier Reef. It's, it's that it's that combination of that kind of ecophilia, that deep awe and love for the natural world, and then and then experiencing that loss. And I feel mm -hmm. that very much um, with you as as a fellow Australian to see what is happening to our country right now. <laughs> and yeah. I know you more than anyone I know have been personally affected mm -hmm. by the fires in a way yeah. that few of us can appreciate we did lose our family home despite pumping 120,000 liters and planning to try and um, and defend it we just realized that this fire was just way too big and so yeah our place is a pile of ash now um, which to be honest we're still kind of coming to terms that it's very easy to just forget that you don't have a house there anymore um, so it's yeah it's been pretty traumatic but trying to looking as you have to at what is the potential positive from it. It has given me a pretty extreme conviction, um, but also moments of inspiration. So I would never imagine that in our town, the conversation at the pub would be about climate change. Um, it's given the world a very, very clear, vivid picture of what changing climate will mean in some places it's given it's taken it out of the kind of conceptual twitter chats and stuff it's just made it 
very visual for a very long time. So I'm hoping that it will be the snowball that we can get rolling. Mm. And um, so, yeah, if if losing our house can give me the conviction, hopefully that the whole story will give a lot more people the same conviction to go out. And if you've got an idea or you can see the way that something can be fixed, just go out and do it because now's the time when people are going to back you. I think it's incredible that in such a moment of grief and loss, you were able to gain that kind of perspective. And I think it's it's a the fear of many people in this space is that as we continue to experience this crisis and this catastrophe, that people are just going to disengage altogether. But as you said, Australia is showing the world what our reality is going to become. Mm-hmm in the context of the climate crisis, and it also shows how it can rally people together. I mean, I have never felt such a sense of patriotism as I have when I've heard the stories of small towns coming together and rebuilding and supporting one another. And exactly Mm -hmm. as you said, having these conversations about climate change, which just wasn't in the vocabulary, you know, two years ago. No, no. And people even with strong convictions would have probably struggled to actually mention it because people are going to turn away and just that's that's changed. Mm. I think as we consider this idea of home and what home means, I feel that we need to instill a greater sense of collective community and I think that is the power of something like the climate crisis is that it really brings things into perspective it gives us that macro overview because you know just as Australia is in flames my second home of Indonesia has just experienced some of its worst flooding in Jakarta over a hundred thousand people displaced um, dozens of people who have passed away And we're just going to continue to see this catastrophe unfolding in every which corner. And with that, we need to recognize that every decision that I make in my daily life has a ripple effect somewhere else in the world. And that is the nature of Mm -hmm. living in very globalized kind of times. The fruit that I buy in the supermarket comes from a different country. The clothes that I'm wearing were fabricated in a different country. Mm With that comes incredible potential and power as well if we are able to appreciate just how much we are all in this together. Mm -hmm. This isn't community against community. It isn't nation against nation. Climate change does not discriminate, nor does the ecological crisis. And so we're looking at our collective future, and this is not something about future generations. We recognize that it is something experiencing us right here and right now. Mm -hmm. How do you think we can better support people to recognize that collective humanity and that collective community? Because part of my fear is that if we do not have that social fabric, people are potentially going to turn against one another if they're already starting from such a a low point. Mm Mm-hmm. You often hear it, you know, how can I care about the end of the world if I'm already caring about the end of the week, you know, and looking after myself. Yeah. The nice thing for me, I suppose, was seeing people who are 
just going to communities where people are really thinking about how they're eating now and tomorrow um, and still having them say, well, still look at what actually they, they physically can do. Um, so there's a, there is quite a big willingness. I suppose there are people living in communities where climate change is very visual. Like So they gave me rotten meat at one point and said, well, it wouldn't normally be rotten, but the permafrost doesn't come as high anymore. Mm. So we can't bury the where we bury kind of the meat is not not cold enough. So there's people who are like experiencing climate change constantly, but just going, we're just going to have to adapt with it and still going like, you know, how can we help you with the, the swan thing as well? Mm. You said climate change affects us all, but it's kind of all of us. But some people suffer right now much more than anybody else. So my Absolutely. next expedition has taken me to across areas of the Sahara the Sahara is also expanding quite quickly. So I'll be again going to places where climate, a changing climate is affecting people right now. So my next trip is Scotland all the way to Ghana in West Africa. And there we'll be showing people not only the connection, I suppose, between everybody, um, but also that those kind of other people, those people in Africa that seem very, very different to people in England. Actually, they, they really aren't that different at all. Um, but because you kind of, we take people on a journey all the way, we'll really try and show the connections. And also, you know, they try and talk about what are the repercussions for some of the climate issues that maybe will affect you. So the desertification in Africa doesn't feel like it affects you. But when you think about that, that's also where lots of our vegetables are coming from. And if they're areas are becoming uninhabitable they will be people will be looking for other places to live so we'll have to be moving and they're not bad people they're just people trying to live on this planet what is going on in africa isn't another world that's actually where that's kind of your extended vegetable garden mm. um that's where your mobile phone bits and pieces come from mm. this is where the kind of the oils that are in your shampoo and all your products like most of unilever's oils are largely coming from there as well so in so many different ways um, we are impacting and it is something that we really are all in together. And I feel that's what maybe the, the, um, the thing that you and I both have, which is very hard to get through to people if they haven't had it, is the growing up where nature was part of mm. your world and you were a part of nature. So very, very similarly, we built our house over time and it was completely surrounded by trees and the snakes would come in and out. We raised a couple of wombats and a couple of wallabies <laughs> when they were orphaned and brought to us. There was no difference. And I was allowed to go out and spend two or three days camping with friends, um, just finding where we'd go in the river, building huts and shelters and then coming home again, following animal tracks because it's much easier to get through the bush that way. Nature has always felt like just part of part of me and part of life it's very hard to give people that if they haven't had it as a child and maybe that's one of the things that i also try and do with this expedition trying to, if you can try and see stuff from the eyes of animals and there's something really really powerful that you said about moral convictions as well and i think it draws back to this critical age of 11 and you stepping up and saying i want to give a speech on this subject that i'm really passionate about 
because I see that trend in friends. I see it through our research. It's this really critical kind of inflection point. For me, it was when I first started watching documentaries and made this very kind of grandiose vow that I wanted to be a voice for the voiceless and that I wanted to commit the rest of my life to doing this thing. That was at 11. For our mutual friend, John Elkington, it was when he made his first donation to WWF and rallied all of his schoolmates around and said, there's this conservation charity and I think we should put our pocket money together and support them. And I see that in so many of the 11 and 12 year olds that I work with in schools as well. And it's this magical combination of sort of a naive optimism, but also this kind of black and white view of ethics and something being right and something being wrong. And they haven't been around long enough for a society to clip the wings of those imaginations. And so they just stand up and they say, I don't want to do this because I don't think it's right. And it, it grates on something inside of me. And I think part of the challenge that I've experienced trying to communicate to, you know, politicians, business folk, is that their values have been so plastered over by the nature of showing up to a job that they have no love for because they're jaded by the bureaucratic systems in which they're having to operate, that they're so out of touch with that younger version of themselves that had total clarity mm. of what matters and what we should be fighting for. Mm. And so... How do you make all of them <laughs> take them all back to that 11-year-old? I think a lot of it is kind of stripping away uh, the narratives that we subscribe to as we operate in our nine to five. Mm. You know, I think we're all in some sense beholden to one narrative of capitalism and the commodification of nature, mm -hmm. the commodification of people. It's a real contrast that you see in many of the, you know, indigenous people I've worked with. Um, and the, the value of the tree is not seen for the table. It's seen for its inherent worth. It's seen mm -hmm. for its ecological and ecosystem mm. services. Mm. And so it is that kind of shifting of values and it's that decommodification. And there is ability, I believe, to unhook from those kind of stories. But it is very difficult when we're living in environments that on the one hand are super urban, as you highlighted, are disconnected from the natural mm -hmm. world, but also when once we're constantly plugged into social media, which has been constructed mm -hmm. to perpetuate consumerism, have us wanting more, more, more all the time and be constantly switched on. And we're also told through the education systems that we grow up in, that we have to go and pursue nine to five jobs that might not, you know, provide us any sense of real self-worth or value or mm -hmm, giving back mm -hmm. or contribution, but at least we're able to pay our bills at the end of the day and pay off the mortgage. Um, so I feel that part of it is gaining perspective. And I do feel that crisis, times of crisis are what can cut through in a much more rapid way. Many of those stories that we construct about the world mm -hmm. that we live in. Yeah. Um, whether you can orchestrate that without the crises, I think it's harder the older you get. I'm interested to know what you think about the difference between why well, we need to actually mm. do this, but feeling like actually I'm going to be the only one or this is not going to be popular or it won't happen or it won't be successful. Well, I think that that can be the beauty of reinstating those kind of intrinsic values that emanate from within about contribution and connection and community mm over the extrinsic values of 
consumption and status and wealth and comparison because then I feel a lot of those stories that we tell ourselves that limit our own potential kind of fall away because exactly as you illustrate, Sasha, it's not about you. It's not about any one of us. Mm. And there is there is no other alternative, right? It's like, actually, no, this is the fate of an entire species that has been evolving for millions of years, or it is this precious part of land that I really care about, mm-hmm. or it is this community mm. in this corner of the world that is going under. Um, and that, I think, having that why is what can yeah, yeah create that you. perspective someone i know paid for me to go and see a coach or executive coach i think they were called underneath it all i was saying you know i've got all these kind of great ideas things i'd like to change but the overarching narrative was nobody would ever let me do it there's i can't do this people don't say agree to this like i can have this vision of where i think things should go but there's just lots of blocks and it's everybody else so this person um just said to me in frustration just spend two weeks wandering around you're going to resign from what you're doing anyway so what have you got to lose just spend the next two weeks and wander around and every day remind yourself that whatever you suggest people are going to say yes to just assume everyone's going to say yes and just say them all like who who cares you've got nothing to lose and so i did it and i wandered around and there was just like doors opening everywhere Mm. and i was like wow and i wonder if that is of use to anybody else to just try it if you're at the point of thinking you know this having a moral conviction that i think things should be different but nobody else is gonna let me do this maybe just try assuming that you are completely wrong and they just might that is and that is the power of assumptions isn't it and even if you go into the assumption with you know everyone's gonna say yes and one person does turn around and say no because you're attached to that positive kind of mindset, it doesn't make it about you. You don't take yeah. it personally. You're yeah. like, okay, that that person's yes. projecting whatever they need to project at this point yes. in time. <laughs> it's just such a release to be able to just make it really not about you. It's about what you're trying to achieve. And yeah, it's uh, you become much braver. And you started this off by saying I was very brave. And I was like, wow. As a kid, would I really thought that I was really brave? Probably not, but I've become brave on certain issues that I have a really strong conviction of. Before Flight of the Swans, my dad called me up and said, I'm reading what they're saying in the media about, you know, flying in areas nobody's flown in bad conditions, blah, blah, blah. How dangerous is it really? And I basically said to him, I've done every bit of preparation I can do um, for 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 this trip i've looked at all the potential risks that i can imagine because we don't know what they all are because nobody's done this before and i've tried to dealt with them um but the just for you to know um i have had an incredible life and i'm actually a point i'm so convinced this will work that i'm willing to try it and if that means that i have a horrible accident on the way i believe in this enough that i'm prepared to take that risk and my dad just said, I can't really argue with that. Wow. And then it was like everything else was okay, so I could just go for it. Pretty incredible what can what we can achieve when we are willing to look in the face of our own mortality and in the face of death and think about that legacy piece. My dad is a frustrated poet, and so he often sends me quite lengthy WhatsApps. And in a recent one, he said to me, he was reflecting and saying that I think many of the world's problems and why we're so disconnected is because we're carving our names so deeply in the tree of life 
that we look as if we're about to kill it. And that comes from fear of our own mortality. And I do get this sense that when you have that mandate, almost that message from God, all of the superficial stuff falls away because you get this really kind of cosmic perspective, which is like, actually, is life about getting those million followers? Is it about getting that job promotion? Or is it about giving myself over in service of something yeah. and living every day from that place of contribution? And it is finding that sweet spot in the messy middle, isn't it? It's that junction between passion and pain. Pain being that problem that you have every conviction to want to solve and passion being where you're kind of in that sandpit and what draws your curiosity <laughs> and where you just naturally like to play. Mm. You know, And I think that's it as well as sustainability on the macro level has been so enshrouded in this message of kind of sacrifice and changing mm. people's behavior and mm. limiting what we can and can't do. And in fact, we need to really invite a new story, a new narrative in around yeah. why this is an invitation, why this is an opportunity for us to reconnect, to be happy. The mental health crisis that we're now seeing is the worst it has ever been. Mm. And much of that stems not just from the scale of the problems, but of inaction from people in elected positions of power. Young people are looking up at big business and politicians and saying, you're not acting with the urgency yeah. that this challenge requires. Mm -hmm. Then what we need to do is not project our responsibility, as you said, onto many of those institutions that by their very fabrication nature cannot create the change that is required, but look to our own individual initiative and not just our responsibility, but our role. Um, responsibility because we have won the lottery of life on this planet. I think we tend to overfixate on the 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 mini, mini lotteries that we we lose, right? But focus on that macro picture of just the opportunity that you've been gifted with, and then recognize, as you said, by playing in that messy middle of passion and pain, what your role is. You know, if the world is a 7.6 billion piece puzzle <laughs> in which everyone has a place, yeah. what does that little cutout look like for you? Mm -hmm. You know, and as you did as well, kind of relinquish expectation. It was the very nature of taking that first step. And as you said, reconciling, okay, I might fail in this kind of grander mission, but it's the fact that I tried. It's the fact that yeah. I did something yeah. big and bold and courageous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And so what comes next for you, Sasha? Based on the last trip, I have been offered this um, or given this title of UN Ambassador for Migratory Species, which takes me out from my sort of focus on um, on species and individual flyway routes to actually looking at what impact I can have globally for migratory species. They do have particular challenges in that most of the countries that they're on their route don't have them in their national plans for a species. And some of them are very hard. I mean, conserving tuna populations that are highly migratory and invisible to most people. What do you really do for, for that? So my next phase is probably figuring out what... How does my particular set of skills fit um, globally? Where can I best put my effort? And again, it feels at the moment I'm a stage of feeling like I could be slightly overwhelmed by it because I'm really not interested in titles with no meaning. I mean, 
it's nice. It might open a few more doors to meetings, but I'm interested if I can use it to to make an impact. So I'll be looking at that on a bigger um, level. And I'm also looking at a couple of species that potentially seen as the opposite for the beautiful swans mm. is that one of the global migratory um, groups of birds which are struggling most are the vultures. So uh, how can I try and make people care for the vultures so the crisis is so bad that there was a conference of migratory um, or birds of prey where every single researcher said let's just forget my species and just focus on the vulture wow. um, and in um, some of the populations have lost 99% of them in many ecosystems they're like the sewage treatment works for a city for example nobody really wants to talk about the sewage treatment works but if it wasn't there we'd all be really really upset about it so in some places they literally are the sewage treatment system they are a weird bird that can get enough protein out of human feces that they can actually live on it i mean it sounds dreadful but in some areas that is like kind of like a that is a linchpin so hence why i've been asked how can i how can i help to try and bring that back unfortunately when there's a carcass on the ground after a after um, an incident of poaching, um, the animal is killed. The vultures will be there in no time, circling above, ready to do what they do best, which means they're also becoming a marker for where there's poaching going on. So poachers mm. are realizing if they poison all the vultures, then they don't have that problem anymore. Oh and you can see why on so many levels that is a potential catastrophe waiting to happen. There's also a a really, really unfortunate consequence of a veterinary drug used for cattle and actually used in humans for gout that took many years to figure out that that was the one thing that a vulture only needs a tiny amount of that left in a carcass and every single vulture will die. Oh. So that's wiped out most of the population in India, for example. The reality for a global ecosystem to thrive again, we need to go back to rewilding. Things need to be allowed to die in nature and the things that eat dead things need to be allowed to eat them. So if we are going to let animals... Um, die and decay and be eaten then that will cause a whole nother problem so mm. there's lots of different issues around the world but vultures are not beautiful so what can I, can I what role can I play in solving those issues using what I do best and as you communicate to a range of different audiences what are some of the tools that you use as someone who has a real gift for analogy and storytelling and how do you try and persuade some of the people who are really kind of calcified and don't want to hear it the first thing is yeah, using the empathy for other species with the person so really trying to initially figure out who they are and what drives them so just normal chat i mean I, I try and understand the other person as much as possible also looking at the situation what could be their kind of pain what are their fears what are their kind of hopes and trying to figure out how on earth where is the common ground um, between us and then when it comes to storytelling, the important also aspect is convincing people to want to be a part of change, offering them a chance to be one of the good guys, not the bad guys from the offset. Because as soon as you create that kind of wall of you're the other mm. and you get their defenses up, then it's very, very hard to get back from that. As soon as you trigger that kind of fight or flight, mm. you've got that um all that process going on in their brains and in that sort of state people are looking at you know pure defense mechanism they're um, not open-minded at all whereas if you can inspire in people 
as I do generally through through story, whether it's mine or whether it's stories of others, if you can get a sense of trigger, a sense of awe in people, then you are opening their creative space. So you open them up to an idea of creativity, but also you open up the sense of feeling quite small in the world, but also very connected to others. So that is where I try and get people before we start talking about an issue. It's triggering awe and wonder and creativity and then going, and this is the problem that we have. Yeah. Like what ideas have you got? And so with that, as you reflect on your own legacy, you're still here. <laughs> you yep. made it. Planned to be for a long time, <laughs> who knows. Yeah, You made it, Sasha. What do you want to be remembered for? I'd like to think that I have taken the weird collection of skills and passions that make me me and have used them for the most good in the world. And that's what I hope other people can do. I mean, I would never say anybody else should fly paramotors with migrating birds because there were definitely moments on the expedition where I was thinking most people in the world would think this is awful. What I'm doing is absolute hell. And I just kept saying, but I'm in my element. Like I'm just feel like this is this is me. This is me being the best of who I can and having an impact where I think I can. And that's, I suppose, the message that I'd like to get across to people. Amazing amazing thank you so much sasha that was absolutely incredible thanks for listening to this force of nature podcast with sasha dench you can learn more about sasha and her organization conservation without borders in the show notes we want to hear your questions aha moments musings and of course we want to know how you plan to let your courage take flight ahead of our next episode with mariam pasha on finding your tribe Force of Nature is edited by Kazra Ferruzia, produced by James Bishop of One Fine Play, and would not be as good as it is without the wisdom of my mum, Janet Hogan. You can find me at Clover Hogan on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and stay in the loop with Force of Nature on all the same channels at forceofnature.xyz, including TikTok. Don't forget to subscribe and go check out our videos on YouTube. See you next time.